You know, I've, I've heard stories, and, and maybe some of you have seen this happen, but I've heard stories of uh, what we know as, in the 1930s, the Great Depression. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands if you are around in that time period, but some of us have been in that time period as we grew up, or we've seen some things happen in that time. Some of us have only studied up on it or have heard about it, the Great Depression. When I was growing up, my mom would tell me stories of what she was going through in that time period because she was just a baby as she was being born and, and what the world looked like. And she said that and, uh, they'd never had the type and kinds and amount of toys that kids have today. She said they only had one toy growing up. She only had one doll growing up. And she said she had to keep that doll in good condition because if that doll got damaged, they couldn't afford to go and fix it or buy another one. They had to fix it themselves. So that was her toy story. That's all she had was one toy. When we were growing up and if we were complaining about my toy is broken or how come I can't get this or we go to the store and we would say, I want that toy and we couldn't afford it, my mom would always tell us the story of her only having one toy. And that's the Great Depression. We just came through what we now know as the Great Recession. The Great Recession was about the ending of the year 2007 through 2008, heading into 2009. Now we're here three years later, and the economy is on an upswing. That's what the economists say. Now you might be thinking, okay, so what is the difference between a depression and a recession? Well, if you ask 100 different economists, you'll get 100 different answers. The best illustration that I've heard is that the great, a, great, a recession is like your neighbor losing their job. A depression is when you lose your job too. So it really has to do with how bad the economy gets. You don't really know you're going through it until you've gone through it and look back at the damages. We hear of the Great Depression that every day almost that you had financial advisors, you had uh, people in Wall Street jumping to their deaths because of how bad it was. And you hear about those stories. Now, some of those stories may be true. Some may be a little bit exaggerated. Or, or maybe some of them are just, you know, embellished a little. But the facts and statistics do not lie. In the 1930s, just to give us a little... Uh, bearing on this and some balance, some some foresight, and and a little bit of uh, a little bit of a clearer picture of, of what it looks like compared to today and 1930s, is that in the Great Depression, unemployment was at 25 percent. Today, it's about you know during the Great Recession, it was about 10 percent, maybe a little bit more than that. Banks closed. In the Great Depression of the 1930s, about half the banks shut down. 50% of the banks shut down. In our day, about 4% of the banks shut down. The problem was about the rest of the 96% of the banks really didn't lend money out. So I don't know how that balances out. 
but you can see that there was a big difference there. In the Great Depression, the stock market dropped 89.2%. In our Great Recession, it dropped 53.8%. So we can see a significant difference in the two. Now, what do we learn from this? Well, the Bible says this in Matthew 18, excuse me, Matthew 10, 16. The Bible tells us, therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. The Bible wants us to apply wisdom. The Bible wants us to learn from the things that we've gone through, the things that affect us, because the recession affected everyone. Probably from the Great Depression till this Great Recession that we've seen, there, was, there were approximately 12 recessions, some worse than the others, but there were approximately that. And the Bible says to use wisdom. And so what we want to do is learn from this recession how we can manage our lives better, how we can plan better, how we can manage our finances better. And Jesus spoke often about these things because it affects us spiritually. He didn't shy away from it. He didn't become worried about, oh, what are people going to think if I start talking about their spirituality and their lifestyle and their finances? He didn't worry about that because Jesus knew that money, fame, the human heart to want, affects us all spiritually at the same level. And so he addressed these things. Here's one lesson that we can learn in going through this Great Recession and then seeing the Great Depression, and you can write this in that bullet in your notes, the first one, that there will always be another recession. There will always be another one. Now, it's tough to take in, and, and we don't like talking about that, but we will go through another one. It will happen. See, we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen society led by sinners. Sometimes the economists get it right, sometimes they don't. We live in a world that we as sinners oversee companies, we risk on certain things, and we're led in this world, in our society, in our nation, by sinners. We're all sinners. So the human heart is very fragile and frail. The human mind can only handle so much and can only think so much. And so we live in this kind of society. Now, we're on the upswing of the economy. Therefore, I figure this is the perfect time for us to make some plans, for us to prepare for the, ne for the next recession. It's the best time. Why? Because things are getting better. Let's not wait for things to get worse to say, Okay, God, what are you saying about this area of my life? Because here's the second thing in the second bullet. Recessions, this is what they do. They expose any weakness, any weakness in my financial philosophy, in the way I think about finances. It exposes all the weaknesses. And we've heard stories of something bad happen financially at the worst possible time. I've heard stories of people coming to me and saying, boy, you know, things were going well in 2005, 2006. Finances were great. So a bunch of us got together and Uncle Richie Rich said, if we all put our money together, we could flip homes, we could buy houses, we could do all these things. And we did that. But then at the worst possible time, the recession hit. And we lost it all. 
I've heard some stories where people would go through their struggles because they thought that everything was going to stay like this. The, the housing market, the real estate was going to stay like this and, and it was going to constantly stay good. And so they invested tons of money in it. And then they lost it because they said, at the worst possible time, the recession hit. Then there's some people who have invested in a home or a, maybe some stocks or even bought a vehicle because their job was promising. And they said, this is the best time to buy because the interest rates are low. And so people just kept buying and buying and buying and buying. And if you go deeper into what happened and you talk about, you know, everything that happened in Wall Street with the, with, uh, the housing market, uh, with credit cards and, and all of those things, you'll find that we were heading for destruction. Now, the good news is, yes, we're on the upswing. But my thought is this. The riskier you are with your finances the more likely you are to attract a recession your way. The riskier, the riskier we are with our finances, the more likely we are to attract a recession our way. Because we're going into something almost blind. We're going into something that we're risking on, hoping that it doesn't go bad. It's almost like we're taunting the economy and saying, you can't touch me. I know what's going to, everything's going well. And so we risk it, forgetting that when we risk more, we attract more. And sometimes that of a recession. The last thing in this bullet, that recessions, recessions tend to demonstrate God's wisdom. Demonstrates God's wisdom and dependability of the biblical plan for money management. Now, I know a lot of it has to do with talking about our finances, but it's interesting to find that that is the one area we have the most difficult time with, with God. Maybe you've been able to work through that and now your faith is in God and so finances aren't really that much of a struggle with you when it comes to the things of God. But I'm going to give you some core essentials on the biblical plan of how to make it through recessions, through difficult times, through great seasons, through bad recessions, deep recessions, even shallow recessions. Because the Bible will give us how to manage our money more effectively. And when it says that to be wise as serpents, wisdom demands us to walk in reality. That's where finances come in. It's a reality. Finances do affect us, and it affects us spiritually. The first thing we can learn from the Bible is that the Bible teaches me to work. Now hang with me on this, okay? The Bible teaches me to work. Ephesians 4.28, it says it like this. Use your hands for good, hard work, and then give generously to others in need. The Bible teaches that. The Bible gives us a way and a, a scale on how to begin to manage our finances. It says that your hands should be used for good hard work. The Bible is saying that there's a call for every able-bodied person to work. Everyone who can work and find work should. Now it doesn't say 
Find your dream job. That's the one you go after. Now, if you do and you get it, great. If you don't, don't stop and say, no more jobs. And there are. And if there are jobs at a retail store or a fast food restaurant and you're too proud to work there, then there's something wrong here, not out there. And when the Bible says, put your hands to work, what it's saying is, what it's not saying is that you go out there and you put what you feel is, is worthy of your presence. That I know you have a degree, I know you're good at this, but if you can't find work there, then ask God to help you find work. Something. And I know many of us are doing that. Many of us are trying to find, okay, what, where can I work? How is this going to work? But I tell you, you put your trust in God, He'll find it. Because the Bible says to put your hands to work. God wouldn't not want to provide a place of work if He says to work. If He's telling us to do this, then He's going to find a place for us. You might be saying, you know, I've put in 50 applications, none called back. At least you're doing what the Lord asks you to do. You're doing your part. Let Him do His. He'll do His part. And you watch what He does. Now, I may, I, I may not have had the best jobs growing up. But I remember when we were growing up, like we would help uncles and aunties. You know, my uncle would tell me, you know, go this pile of dirt, move it and fill up this area. Take this pile of rocks and put it here. Help me build this rock wall. Uh, help us with this. And they would pay like $5. And I thought, that's pretty cool. You know, we'd go down to the, um, you know, to the game center and blow it on games. And, and there went our $5. And then uh, my auntie would come down and tell us to clean the whole entire yard. And she would pay us to do that. The first time I went to Heidi's house, her father, which is my father-in-law, put me to work. I had to clean their garage. The first time I went to their house, remember that, Mom? I went to the house. Dad said, clean the entire garage. We're cleaning this up. I thought, this is kind of weird. But that, I guess that was my initiation test to come into the family. And then I got another job uh, doing retail. And then I got another job doing artwork. And so throughout time, there's different jobs that I've had. You may have similar stories. You may have had jobs galore through your years. So I think many of us know how to work. Some of us, and we're not proud of this, we work sometimes 50, 60, 70 hours a week. And when we hit our bed and our head hits the pillow, we say to ourselves, I'm tired. But deep down inside, we know how to work. And so the Bible teaches that something about working adds dignity to the human soul. I think that's where sometimes as husband and wife, that's where we struggle, where the husband says, I'll work. Or the wife works, and, and so one or the other feels like they're not contributing. They feel like, you know, I, I want to do something. But maybe in your situation, maybe you're the one taking care of the family right now. Maybe you're the one who's taking care of the home right now. That's where the relationship needs to stay tight with one another, and especially with God. The second thing is that the Bible teaches me to save. Did you know that? That the Bible actually teaches us to save. It instructs us to save. In the book of Proverbs, this is how the Bible says it. And I love this. It says, go to the ant, you sluggard. 
Consider her ways and be wise, which, having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplier provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. Now, I, I know this may be a weird question to ask in a setting like this, but how many of you guys, when you were younger, would watch ants, but then burn them with magnifying glasses? Come on, just be honest. Just please help me out on this. I know that some of you are not raising your hands because you feel like, oh man, I was killing God's creatures. Uh, we would do that because as children it was fun. Now don't go out and buy magnifying glasses, okay, kids? Uh, the Bible says, "Learn from ants, not burn the ants." And what the Bible is saying is there's something significant about the ant. It's saying that the ant gathers and saves for the for what is to come by instinct. No one has to teach the ant how to save. It saves by instinct. So I thought, maybe we, Lord, should learn to save by instinct. We're the exact opposite. We spend by instinct. We get our paycheck, and before our paycheck is even put in our hands or deposited into our accounts, it's gone, right? Gone to rent, the, <laughs> the clearance sale, the car payment that we really can't afford, the clothes that we just bought because we went through a season of depression or anxiety, and so we went on a, on a, on a frenzy and a splurge of spending money. So the, the Bible says learn from the ant, that the ant saves. It does the exact opposite from us. Now here's something that I've learned a while back, and we've been applying this since that time, and it works well. And some of you know this. It's called the 10-10-80 plan. Now, let me just give you this in, in just a brief snapshot. The 10-10-80 plan says that I give to God 10%. I pay myself 10%. Or I save 10%. And then I live on 80%. I thought, there's no possible way we could do this. But when we did that, and we didn't have money at the end of the month to buy things... It was okay. Because we were doing the 10, 10, 80 plan. So many people never realized that throughout their entire life that they've made hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes millions, and have nothing to show for it. Because they've never thought of paying themselves. They always thought of buying things and getting things and never figured out the 10, 10, 80 plan that, wait a minute, I can actually pay myself. I do get a paycheck. Is that not paying yourself? No. That paycheck, almost 30%, actually 30% goes to the government. Another percentage goes to health care. Another percentage goes to our mortgage, our rent, our utilities. So think about it. We very rarely think of savings. Some of us do. Some of us may be behind and we're lacking in this area. Learn from the ants. The ants pay themselves. Instead of us going to college 
universities for financial wisdom, go to Ant College and Ant the Ant University because they will teach us. That's great to get degrees, but the Bible says learn from the ants. You may be a bit behind and you're saying, I have no savings. I can't save. I'm going to I'm going to give this as a as an encouragement for us. And someone encouraged me to do this. I want to pass this on to you too. For the next 6 months. For the next 6 months. Become pake. Now, if you don't know what that means, talk to Dr. Kyle Chalk. He'll explain to you everything about what it means to be pake. <clears throat> In this way, just no more shopping for the next six months for extra clothing attire. Anything extra for the next six months. And you just save and save and save for the next six months. No brand new clothes, no brand new shoes, no more tools that you don't need, golf clubs that you cannot do anything more with it. For the next six months, try that. Save, save your finances. Put it away. Sometimes we say it in this way that we need to put away of. Enough finances for six months' pay, just in case there's another tough season that you have the means to be okay. And it's not about the money; it's about let's just say if you lose your job, then you have that time to find another one. So you just go on a reckless, opposite, non-spending spree, and you just put things away, foregoing. Buying expensive coffee for I know some of the business owners are saying, "What are you doing to my business? You're telling people not to shop." Uh, this is just for a season, so that we can save. Uh, some of us, we we need to stop downloading apps, applications for our phones. We just app away, and because it's cheap, but at the end of the month, it adds up. I'm guilty of that too. And so, for the next six months, if you're in this area of trying to save, okay. Some of us we take out huge loans so that we can do certain things. I'd say save for it. Do your very best to save for it. It'll be that much more enjoyable when you come back from whatever you splurged on or whatever you took a loan out for. It'll be a whole lot more enjoyable. You know what is interesting? That we we are motivated and can be motivated when we do this thing right. We can make a dramatic improvement financially when we understand the principle behind what the Bible is is saying, especially when we're committed. The third thing, the Bible teaches me to avoid debt. You may be thinking, "Shucks, too late. I'm in it." But the Bible teaches it. The Bible teaches us to avoid debt, avoid debt like the plague, avoid debt, hate debt. Now I'm going to speak to the football fans. Avoid debt like you uh, hate debt, like you hate your arch nemesis of your football team. For some of you, you you hate the Dallas Cowboys. Some of you hate. The Chicago Bears. Some of you hate the Green Bay Packers. Some of you hate the Washington Redskins. 
Some of you hate certain teams in the NBA. Some of you hate cockroaches. Oh, I hit a nerve on that one. Some of you really hate cockroaches. Like, if, if you're trying to kill one and someone throws a piece of paper in front of you, you scream. I mean, you're, you're that phobic about cockroaches. Like, right now, you're getting, like, heebie-jeebies. You, you, don't want, you don't want them around. And when you're home by yourself and a cockroach pops out, you're done. It's like you wreck the whole entire house. Your husband comes home or someone comes home and all you see is box shot bullet holes in the wall because you're trying to kill a cockroach. Some of you hate lizards. You can't stand lizards, those sticky thingies, and, and, and the tongue comes out, and the wiggly tail, and all of that. You hate lizards. You just get irritated from that sound. Some of you hate centipedes. Oh, yeah, I don't like them at all. Some of you hate those things. Hate debt like you hate those things. I was eating at this one sushi bar place and uh, someone ordered this one sushi platter and so they were passing it out and I thought, oh, this looks really good. And so my friend ate one and I said, how is it? He said, oh, mean, mean. I said, right on. So I popped it in my mouth. It was sea urchin, uni. If you've ever ate that, it's like eating ivory soap with pepper. It just was bad. And I ate it. And the guy that was buying this for everyone looked at me and said, So what, Pastor? Well, here you go. I was like, mm. <laughs> I literally wanted to throw up. But out of respect, I ate the thing. And it was the grossest thing I've ever eaten in my life. And so my thought is, hate that like uni. You can put that in front of me. You can, you can spice it up. You can put my favorite food around it. I will not touch the thing. I hate that thing with a passion. Figure out what is the food you hate the most and hate debt just like that. Now, let me speak to the younger people who may be on the verge of entering into what we call the world of economics. Very rarely are we taught this, that economics has a lot to do with life. Now, we may have been taught a little bit, but as earliest as possible in your young life, Hate debt. Hate it. There may be some things that you have to do without, but you struggle through it to hate debt. Because if you want to start a family, if you want to buy a home, if you want to do these things later on in life, and you're in debt, you can't. You're going to find it very difficult. And then what debt does is debt tells us what to do, where to live, what job to have, what car to own, what clothes to wear. Debt has that much power. It's like we're now in slavery with debt. The Bible teaches it this way in Proverbs 22, verse 7. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. When you load up on debt, you become imprisoned. You feel imprisoned. It's like you can't do what you want to do. If you want to help someone, you can't. You're in debt. If you want to go to uh, uh, college or something, you can't. You're in debt. You want to help your kids go to college, you can't. You're in debt. It's, it's a difficult thing to deal with. We, come, we become a slave to the borrower. We can't do what we want to do. Jesus went to the cross to set us free. Here's what's ironic. Many of us sign up for bondage that we were never created for. 
in this thing called debt. It's a terrible thing. It tells us what to do and how to live. Hate debt. Most of why we go into debt is because we don't live within God's provision. God provides, we live outside of His provision. We live outside of our means. God is saying, I'm going to provide for you. But the problem is not me not providing. The problem is you stepping outside of my provision. So I want you to stay within my provision. Yeah, but I want this. Everybody's getting this. It's the next thing. It's this and that. No, no, This is what I'm providing. But everybody's going on a trip. I want to go with them. No, this is the provision. When I step outside of God's provision and I go into debt and another recession, when it hits, I'll be messed up big time. But God says, no, turn that around. Live within my provision. Attack debt. Live debt-free. Some of you, when you got debt-free, you, you were so glad that you went through that. Some of you right now may be trying to get out of debt. And then at the end, you're thinking, I'm going to throw a party as I get out of this, because this is great. Throw a cheap party. But you're, you're doing your best to get out of debt. Now, you might be thinking, okay, I hear all of that, but I can't, I can't get out of debt. Here's a word I want all of us to learn, and this is what the Bible teaches. It's, it's a commitment that we all must have, and it's, it's the concept, the biblical concept of contentment. You can write that in your fourth point. The Bible teaches me to be content. Even the word itself sounds so comforting. Try these two words. Say debt. Debt. See, I mean, it just has a, it even sounds like a sword digging deep into your heart and soul. Debt. (laughs) But watch. Let's say contentment together. Ready? Go. Contentment. It's like you're sitting down into a nice couch. Contentment. Say it again. Contentment. I feel so good. But contentment. Paul teaches this in the New Testament in Philippians 4.11. He says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. We can learn to be content right where we are. I'll, I'll do this every now and then. I'll write down how God is blessing me. I'll write down uh, salvation. I'll write down uh, my marriage. God has blessed me in my marriage. I'll write down my children's name, my grandchildren's name. I'll write down uh, this church, wonderful people. He's surrounding me with loving people. Uh, I, I'm in a place and a, 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 a calling that I love and I enjoy. And so I write down all of these things. Try that. Write down all the things that God is blessing you with, whatever it would be. And at the end of that list, I am so content. I'm saying, I, I don't need anything else, Lord. I, I'm learning to be content because my contentment is in you. That's where I'll find contentment. I don't, I don't, I don't need another this or another that. I, I, I'm, I'm okay. It's not going to change the contentment I already have in you. If I try to get these other things. Try that every day. Just write down some things or every now and then just say this to yourself. What are some things that God has blessed you with? Talk about your family, your children. Talk about where you work and your job. The finances that God has already provided for you. Whatever, whatever you can name, start naming those things. You know, I was watching uh, a lot of how 
how people market things and how how businesses market. And this is this is great strategy. Shopping malls do this well. Uh, airports do this well. But shopping malls will design itself to have competition so that the bar of excellence continues to rise so that they attract more customers. They'll do that. Airports are being designed so that when you get off the airplane after your long, agonizing trip, that you walk through tons of merchandise. If you travel a lot, you'll notice that at the airports, there's tons of stores before you get to your flight. If you go to theme parks, when you get off the ride, after that exhilarating ride and you're pumped with adrenaline, you're like, oh, that's so good, let's go again. You walk through the store of their merchandise. And so you're saying, oh, I want to get this, I want to get this, oh, I want to get this. Why? Because you're so excited about what you just did. They design it that way. Now, here's something, here's a mantra I've learned in the past couple of years that has helped me big time. That when you're walking through all of these things, you can say this to yourself. I can admire you without having to acquire you. And kind of repeat that to yourself. We Let's practice that, okay? Let's just try. We're, we're doing this this morning. So the first part is, I can admire you. Ready? Go. I can admire you. The second part is, without having to acquire you. Okay? Ready? Go. Without having to acquire you. Now you got to say it with passion in your mind. I can admire you without having to acquire you. Because they're going to call your name. These things will call at you. As you're walking past the merchandise, they say, Hey, Ante, these purse will go great with your dress. These shoes will match the shirt you have on now because right now they're not matching. And it will speak to you. Maybe not in that accent, but it will speak to you. Men, you go through the tool section or you go through the man section, electronics. Oh, you need a bigger television. That's what it will say. It will tell you, Look, man, your eyes are going bad. Your eyes are going bad. You need a bigger television. And it'll tell you that. Maybe not like that, but it'll tell you. It, it will speak to you. But that's when you do your mantra. I can admire you without having to acquire you. If you want to watch the game on HDTV, go down to the store and sit there, grab some popcorn and watch it because they have it on. It's there for your enjoyment. You can admire it. You don't have to acquire it. But think in that way, that you're not going to let them get the best of you because we're content in Christ. Now here's the balance. If we only work at focusing on just saving, and if we only focus on hoarding, we can actually become greedy. And the Bible brings such balance to that. We can work hard at driving debt down, but we can fall into becoming a selfish, a selfish person. Or we can actually have a shrinking heart or a diminished capacity to give generously. Yes, we'll have more money. Yes, we'll have less debt. But we'll not be able to reflect the heart of God like how the Bible says, and for the poor. Therefore, number five, the Bible teaches me to give. I can't help but talk about what the Bible is teaching us in this area. The Bible says it like this, and I, I love, I love the, the illustration and the truth 
that the book of, the book of Proverbs brings. It says in Proverbs 3, 9, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruit of all your increase. And this is what it's saying. In the agrarian, in the agricultural kinds of setting, the Bible is teaching that when the farmer is waiting for the first fruit, and they're waiting for that season, they're thinking, come on, when is the first fruit? When is it coming? When is it coming? When that first fruit hits, they would actually take the first fruits and do like an like an like an old-fashioned foot race to the market. Because whoever got to the market first with their first fruits would get the best market value for their first fruits because everybody's waiting for the wheat, the corn, the grain, whatever it would be. And so when you came, they would pay you top dollar. The longer you took, the more the price dropped. And it's like in our society today. When the first thing comes out, it's $800. Ten years later, it's $30. They're called DVD players. So that's kind of how it was. And so what the Bible is saying is, instead of you running to the marketplace, the Bible is telling these farmers, you run past the marketplace and straight to the temple of the Lord and you lay your first fruits down. And what God is saying is, tell me you love me. Show me that you love me by bringing your first fruits. That you're not going to go to the marketplace, but you're going to come to me and you're going to lay it down, your first fruits. That I'll give you top dollar for it. And I'll take care of you. Show me that you love me. Tell me that you love me. Tell me that you're thankful that I've given you life. Tell me that you're thankful that I've blessed you. Tell me that you're thankful for all that I'm doing in your life. That's what the Bible is saying. You run to his temple and you lay it down at his feet. Proverbs 3.10, it says, So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. And what the scripture is asking is, Who's first place in your life? Who deserves your first fruits? In what ways does honoring God keep you from becoming some hoarding person? These are the ways. Or just become rich and then we don't give any attention to the concerns of the world, the struggles of the poor, or the things of God, the homeless, or the things that are happening in our community, or the condition of the poor. Now, when you honor God with your first fruits of all that you have, there is a blessing that falls on your life. And you let God figure out how He's going to do this thing called His blessing. Some teach a, a form of this or they deviate from this kind of teaching. And the Bible never teaches us to give in order to expect to get rich. The Bible never teaches that. It does say to honor God with your first fruit and He will bless your life in hundreds of ways. You let Him worry about how He'll do that. We just focus on giving Him our first fruit. And here's the instruction because I do want to give you instruction on this. Malachi 3.10, it says this, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Here's the question. Now if it's true that 
and, and, and that this plan works. God's plan works. And if it's true that what the Bible is saying about our spiritual condition financially, that Christ's followers have been blessed throughout the hundreds of years being on this plan, I just want to ask this question. If it is working, why aren't many of us on this plan? If it is working, which it is. I just want to ask that question. Whatever your reason is, I want to give you some some thoughts about what we go through. And for some of you, you may have never heard about this kind of teaching. And maybe you're wondering, I've never thought about it in this way. So I'm going to give some of you an out because you're new and you've never heard clear teaching on this. But now you're saying, you know, it makes sense to me. Then plan on starting it, and you might be thinking about this, starting on giving to God tomorrow, today. You're saying, that I want to do that. Some of you are brand new Christians, and you are in a financial train wreck. And you're saying, I don't know how to give to God. I misuse money. I I don't know how I'm going to do this. I have an abusive spending habit. I can't give 10% right now. I remember being there. So I started slowly. You can give 1%. Yeah, but that's like a couple dollars. It's not about the money. It's about the principle of your first fruit. That you run past everything else and you lay it at the Lord's feet. And then you go, you, you watch. He'll help you get to 2%. 3, 5, 7, and then 10. You watch Him work that through. Some of you, I know, you give over 10%. Because you can. You're saying, you know, the Lord has blessed me in this kind of way, and I believe in this area, so I give 12%, 15%. Some of us give over and beyond. That's how we got that tent outside for us to, to be under, because many of you gave over and beyond. So many of us understand this concept. I also want to address another group, and I rarely hear teaching on this, but I love you enough to be courageous enough to say this. There is a group of you who are in blatant rebellion. That you're saying to the Lord, I trust you with my salvation. I trust you with forgiveness. I trust you with my sin. I trust you with eternity when I die. I trust you with my life. But this money is all mine. I don't trust you with it. It's blatant rebellion. I want to encourage you to hear the Lord's heart on this. Not necessarily mine. But the Lord's heart on this. Sometimes I cannot make sense of where I used to be in that same boat where I would make excuses and say, God, I, I can't do this. I, or, or I would say, I don't trust people. I don't, I don't trust this. But now I understand. And now, Lord, I trust you. You can get to that point. You can make it to the point where you're saying, Lord, I trust you financially. Here's what can become difficult. When we cut God out of the money equation, when difficult times hit, I'm sorry to say it this way, but you're on your own. There is no supernatural intervention. You're on your own because you said to God, I'm cutting you out financially. People would ask me from time to time, are you ever tempted to like not give to God? because you want to get something or, or maybe it is a difficult season. 
since I've been giving in the nine, in the late early 90s when we first started to come to church and started to understand the giving part it's never been a temptation for Heidi and I I think there are a few times where we thought about it but it never pulled us because we understood that God you're so good that I would never want to give God any reason not to cover me financially that I'm in his care I don't want to tamper with his tithing plan. I don't want God's non-protection when I head into a catastrophic, horrific financial situation. I would never think about not giving to God financially. To me, that is financial suicide. And so my encouragement is that we all develop a heart for this. And many of you may have. You might be saying, I do have a heart for this, but I get careless. I, I, I write out the check. I throw it in the, the, my, my shirt or pocket, but I forget and I wash it and then it's gone. And I don't know what to do after that. But we keep working at this. Some of you forget about it. Some of you thought your spouse did wrote the check, whatever it may be. But whatever the case just think through, how can I be better at this? Because it'll affect the generations to come. How do you think our children will be when they understand us giving to God? Our children will be blessed. I hope and pray that this morning, although a different type of service or message or, or, or word from God will help you tremendously, and not just for today, but in the years to come. Because God is bigger than any recession or depression that will come our way. Because He is the great God of the universe. We're going to close and conclude. Kind of going a little bit over time. Sorry about that. But I think it's all good for us. Now I do want to say thank you for being the church. When we look back on this great recession and even the great depression, we, we see a lot of things that we could have done better. The great recession, you know, yes, big companies, you know, just failed. And that's what we pretty much remember about it, housing market and all of that, foreclosures. But I want to give us another picture. Not what happened in the world, but what took place in the kingdom of God through your church, our church. That during that great recession in the year 2007, 8, and a little bit of 9, that this church continued to give generously. That you were able to say to our great God that I trust in you. I think we will be, we will be remembered as that during this season. We've seen our food pantry take a rise in giving. That many of you were a part of our Plus One program where you went to the store and even though you didn't have the means, you bought one more canned good to feed someone. And you brought it up here. We were still able to feed many people in our community through our Under His Wings program. Because you gave. 
we were still able to not raise our prices for breakfast. Think about it. Many restaurants, and, and, and not putting blame on anything or, or saying that this was a bad thing for them. They had to do what they had to do. Many restaurants tripled in prices right before our eyes without us even knowing it. Where else can you get breakfast for three dollars? Our Wednesday night meals. Two dollars for a meal. And even a dollar for a, a mini plate. Some of us complain that there's not enough food for a $3 plate. For a $2 plate, a $1 plate. And we're saying, where's the rice? Can I have one more Portuguese sausage? How come I want to get that much eggs? Even through that, because of your hearts to give and serve, we're still able to not raise our prices. That says something about your courageous heart, your relentless attitude to give God your very best. I really don't know how we'll be remembered, that we'll be remembered through this time period. But that's how I remember this church in the past couple of years. And in behalf of our God Almighty, I want to say thank you for your hearts and giving. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for being the greatest giver of them all. Thank you for giving us your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us a heart like yours. I pray, Lord, that we've been able to glean from this morning, from your word, how we can be better. How we can learn from a recession like the one we went through. Thank you for bringing us through it. I pray your blessing on your people. Because when the church rises up and do what it's called to do in this area, this is when we see church at its very best. And people come to know you as Lord and Savior. And so we thank you for being the miraculous God who provides. It's in your name. In your name we pray. And New Hope Hilo Hawaii said, Amen.